Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Swarmstead Bees and Gardening Live. My name is Bruce Rodriguez. Tonight, my guest is Dr. Seth Coleman. <laughs> I almost forgot already. Um, he has a PhD in evolutionary biology, among many other things. Um, I brought him on tonight so that we can talk about uh, all kinds of things. We'll talk about uh, how evolution, selection, um, selective breeding, artificial selection, how all these things happen in the animal and plant kingdom world and how they can relate to beekeeping. Um, and I'll bring them in right now. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Um, I'm just really glad you uh, were able to come in and, and talk to me about talk to me about this subject. I've always really been interested in evolutionary uh, biology. One of my favorites is Richard Dawkins. That's where I learned all, oh, yeah. all my um, everything it. I learned about it. And um, so if you could, I usually just start by um, asking my guests to just give me a little background about yourself, um, yeah. you know, kind of what what you studied and maybe a little bit of what you know about bees so far. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm, thank you so much for, for having me, honestly, first and foremost. And um, I'm as fascinated with bees and beekeeping as you maybe with evolutionary biology and processes. So we'll learn from each other tonight, I think. Um, yeah, so my name is Seth Coleman. Uh, I am from Washington State and just grew up uh, with sort of the childhood love of like nature and, and the out of doors and that evolved into wanting to answer questions that I didn't have the answers to and almost all of them had to do with why some animal was doing something. And so that really just, just uh, over the course of school and, and getting older and more focused um, turned into uh, a PhD in, in evolutionary biology. I studied the satin bowerbird over in Australia for my PhD thesis. So I got to spend a lot of time in, in the for eucalyptus forests of northern New South Wales, which was incredible. Um, but as we were talking, you know, just a little bit before we came live, one of my favorite topics in the classes that I was taking in my, my dissertation um, had to do with uh, the evolution of social behavior and, of course, bees are front and center uh, when we talk about the evolution of sociality and social animals. Um, and it's really cool, you know, you have 20,000 species of bees and they run the gamut from being totally solitary to hyper social, right? Like the honeybees that we're gonna talk about a lot tonight. So yeah, I'm just, I'm really glad to be here. This is a great topic and uh, yeah, thanks again for having me. Okay, yeah, no problem. Um, thanks for coming. And so just to, for full disclosure, are you a beekeeper? No, I'm fascinated them? by it, but I've never kept bees. It's not okay. something I know much about. Yeah. Yeah. So, so one thing I tell people is um, just that selection. That can, first, can you can you kind of give me a couple of the differences between capital E evolution, which a lot of people say, and then how that's different from uh, artificial selection by maybe some type of obstacle. Um, yeah. for an animal to survive and selective breeding, which is more man-driven, right? Right, and, and artificial selection <clears throat> is a term that's kind of, it, it, it means the same thing as selective breeding really anymore. Um, and it just implies that it's not nature or natural pressures that are doing the selecting, but instead it's us. Selective breeding is just a more specific term because it really describes what it is we're doing. We're in charge of which animals get to breed or which plants in our population. Um, natural selection, so and that actually is evolution. We use that when I'm teaching uh, classes in biology or evolution, we use selective breeding as evidence for evolution because quite literally what we're doing is we are choosing individuals from our populations and breeding those specific individuals because they have traits that are desirable, whatever that might be. Um, and then those individuals, assuming those traits are heritable, that they have a genetic basis, pass on those traits and hence those behaviors um, to their offspring. And you end up with a population that has that trait of interest more widespread than the population before. Um, that's how we, you know, create everything from like taller, more robust strains of wheat that don't fall down in a windstorm to honeybees that produce higher yield or are more effective pollinators. Um, natural selection. So that is evolution, right? It's just literally seeing a change in gene frequencies over generations. And the genes in artificial selection or selective breeding are the ones we're trying to propagate. So we've identified that behavior and we're pushing that behavior forward. Under natural selection, sort of capital E evolution, um, we are not the selective agents. 
nature is, natural processes, uh, predator-prey relationships. You know, the wolf is driving the speed of the elk and the speed of the elk and the endurance of the elk is driving social behavior and endurance in, in wolves. Um, because wolves that coordinate and cooperate better and have bigger lung capacity and can run further, catch more elk, survive better, reproduce better than a pack of wolves that is less cooperative, less communicative, and less in, in less, less good shape, you know, physical shape to track these elk down. And so you have under natural selection, um, you have natural, you have natural pressures driving the evolution of these populations or in these populations. So obviously under that situation, we are not the coming in and quite literally saying, you know, male A mates with female B because we want trait X in the next generation. That's up to, to nature. That's up to the speed of the elk and the speed of the wolf. Um, so I hope that, I don't know if that yeah. kind of covered it, but yeah, it's a, uh, it's worth it, certain traits being promoted in the subsequent generations. It's really just the only difference is who's doing the selecting nature or us. Right. So sometimes um, some of my friends, even, you know, people who also do treatment free beekeeping, which which you'll get to know what that means. Um, yeah, cool. The, they'll say, um, I'd like to just get some bees and let evolution take its take its course. But that's not actually what it is, because once you got your hands in there poking around, mm. you, you may be purposely or unknowingly selecting for many, many things that, that would not happen all alone in the woods by themselves. So, no, so you can't really true. have evolution happening in your yard. You're having selective breeding kind of, or, or it could kind of be artificial selection. Um, the, the, the um, examples that come to my mind are, have you ever seen those sheep that live on those really steep, steep um, walls of that was it a bridge or something that they made? Um, yeah, they're they're on the stones of the bridge, right? They just use the bridge as though it's the cliffs, the natural cliffs that they're used to. Okay, yeah. So, but those are like really, really, um, they're really, really steep, and yeah. the way they just run on them, and, and there's predators that can chase them, but but they're constantly battling. But some of those sheep are going to fall down occasionally and die, mm -hmm. right? Because if they right. didn't. If they and someone might see the, a video of, of one of those, I think it's a big horn, whatever it is, um, they'll see one tumbling down and they'll say, oh, no, they need to like build some type of thing so that when they fall, they won't die or put some kind of extra grip on there. Like a sheep catcher at the bottom of every mountain. Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. And I try to explain to them, like, that's part of selection. It will there will never be a day when all the sheep will never fall again like they're that they will die. Um, something's going to die just to keep things going. And that's kind of how it is with beekeeping and how I keep bees. Um, I don't treat a lot of, not a lot, but a good number do die. Um, mm -hmm. But then a good number do survive. So, and then there was also the example of those, there were some moths that were, that um, I forget what area it was, but they were white, but everything they landed on, they stood out really bad. Great example. But, um, and it, there was some type of smoke or something. I think yeah. it was the Industrial Revolution that caused everything to be covered in soot. So they, over time, they adapted a darker color that, where the white ones would just get smashed. But any little bit of blackness that, that would um, blend them in kind of helped them live. How long, yeah. that, off the top of your head, how long would that have taken? Um, so that that is an incredible natural experiment that, like you said, occurred around the Industrial Revolution. These are the peppered moths of England. And initially, these populations, and to, to, to answer your question, just before we get into the little story, um, I think this occurred over, it was incredibly quick because of the, the strength of selection against either being light colored or dark colored on your background. And so I think that the transition from the population being predominantly white to predominantly black moths was really rapid, like a five or 10 years oh, wow. um, of this That's soot. Yeah, and so that, yeah, and I love it that you brought up that story. And this, I thought you were gonna say a hundred years maybe. No, it wasn't even remotely that, that long, um, both because moths have, can have multiple generations, right? So they're not like us where you're waiting nine months, you know, between pregnancy and giving birth and, um, and all of that, but but the selective pressure was so strong because literally once the once these trees, so the story goes, and I love it that you know this one, but the, so the, the way that the story played out was 
as all of these industrial factories come online, they start belching soot, you know, into the into the air, and this soot coats the trees in the in the nearby forests that were traditionally light gray bark in color, and so light gray kind of white, you know, pretty bright colored bark, and so most of the moths in these peppered moth populations were light colored because being a light colored moth against a light colored background made you better camouflaged. And if you were a dark moth, you know, just happen to be, unfortunately, have that gene that you're a dark moth in a light colored world, you get eaten real fast by the birds that are looking for food. Well, as the soot starts to cover these tree trunks, um, all of a sudden these white moths that were loving being camouflaged forever, <laughs> were all of a sudden standing out against the background of the trees. And now the dark colored moths that are sitting on these trees are the ones that are blending in. So all of a sudden the birds just being visually orienting predators are like, you know, they don't care. They're like, hey, that's a moth. That's a moth. And they just start eating the heck out of the white colored moths, leaving almost nothing but the dark colored moths. So the dark colored moths are the ones that are breeding, surviving and reproducing, producing more dark colored moths. Now, what's really interesting is that after the initial sort of pollution pulse of the industrial revolution, England and a lot of other countries started taking steps to clean up the, the stuff that was, you know, being spewed out of these big power plants and industrial um, factories. And so naturally the forest started to revert back to light colored bark trees, predominantly light colored bark trees. And so you have this total reversal then back to the original condition and we can actually watch this happen and scientists did watch this happen in real time by collecting data weekly for years on the uh, frequency of light versus dark colored moths and what you see is that as the trees get dark uh, being a white moth is no longer beneficial white moths are eaten dark moths reproduce and pass on those genes for dark coloration but then as the trees go back to more light colored bark now all of a sudden those dark colored moths that were favored are the ones that are predominantly eaten and the light colored moths now are favored and now in in english forest uh you it's rare to see a dark colored moth because most of the forests are relatively clean at least the color of the bark and so most of the peppered moths are the white morph moth so yeah that's just too cool i love that story it's a really cool it's a great story because it's actually one of those one of those examples where we see evolution actually happening before our eyes you know over the course of a couple decades you know yeah so, neat so stuff one, one um assertion that gets um said to me very often is um, you can't select for survival of varroa mites, which is the main pest here. Here in well, in many places, it's the varroa mites and and their viruses that they carry. I mean, mostly the viruses, but they'll say the bees cannot be selected for survival for any of these things because it takes eons of of selection for that to happen. And and an example like that, where an organism can completely change its color um, in in a short amount of time you know kind of contradicts that and it, and it really does evolution can happen on on really vast time scales but it, it can also happen really quickly right i mean literally we you know with my students we can do experiment do experiments where we can kill you know 90 percent of the bacteria in a petri dish and then ask questions about that that those two colonies that 10 percent you know that survived ask questions about why they may may have survived if we then allowed that to kind of, you know, continue and just uh, perpetuated those particular colonies that survived and then tested them again and found that the colonies that those colonies gave rise to are also resistant to whatever chemical application we just gave them. I mean, that's evolution, right? We've literally gone from a population in a dish that is 90% susceptible to a particular chemical treatment to a population in a dish over just you know a, a few days literally in the incubator that's 90 percent resistant to that chemical you know right. so so it's just it's important to recognize that evolution happens on all sorts of scales and sometimes we can quite literally watch it you know when it comes to like bacteria or like the the uh, peppered moth example over you know a few decades Right. Um, and, but and it's the, also happening over eons too, right? So we have this huge time scale and people sometimes get caught up in thinking evolution can only happen over these huge time scales. But if the selective pressure is strong enough, evolution can happen at any scale.
yeah, I forget what the term was. I think it was, oh man, now I forget his name, but I watched the video. It was something like emergency um, selection or something when, when a very drastic situation happens uh, to, a, to a population. But um, so in the beekeeping community, there's the arms race between varroa mites and honeybees. Right. So going by what you said, um, a common practice in beekeeping is to fight these varroa mites, to fight them, you know, tooth and nail. So there are um, certain treatments that you can use to knock your mite population down, like to 99% down. So you're taking right. thousands and thousands of mites and turning them into a, a small little handful, a dozen, right? repeatedly and repeatedly over and over again. How does, what will be the outcome of something like that over time? I mean. Yeah, so without knowing like, I, I may not have the right answer here simply because uh, you know, I may not understand B like generation times well enough. Cause obviously that plays a huge role in like the ability to evolve, right? Yeah, is, that's what you know, bacteria sorry. generation times yeah. can be 20 minutes, you know, or a couple hours. Um, right. But, but in, in your example, so my concern, and we see this in, in sort of industrial scale agriculture, you know, whether it's, again, whether it's, you know, crops or whether it's uh, domesticated animals, that the more inputs we have in the system, yeah, it may keep your, your wheat or your cows or your bees alive for another season, but the more, the more we assist with the survival of the organisms that we're trying to promote, um, the more risk we run of, of promoting organisms, colonies, fields that that under natural conditions maybe shouldn't survive and i'm not talking about like shouldn't like capital s like they don't need you know they shouldn't exist no it's it's yeah. more like they don't have the natural capacity to resist the stuff that's being thrown at them like these mites you know or bacterial infections and in, bacteria in you know cattle populations domestic cattle um, the more inputs we have to assist in that survival part of our organisms the, the larger risk we run of, in, of really just stripping them of their natural ability to fight anything. You know, we're, we're producing sort of a weaker animal um, when compared to like the, the natural state or what we call, you know, sometimes the wild state or the wild type. Um, so that would be my concern, right? Is if we're doing all of the, if we're doing all the work to help these organisms survive that otherwise wouldn't, that's the key, right? These, the, you know, a particular bee colony or some cattle or, you know, some corn um, wouldn't survive if we didn't throw a bunch of chemical treatments at them. Um, that's great. We can send, you know, that honey or that, that uh, corn or that beef to market that year. We don't, you know, maybe lose out on the financial costs of, of them dying and not going to market. But in the long run, we're we're certainly not doing the population any favors in terms of like their ability to fight um, like mites or bacterial infections. And that would, that would be my concern. Yeah. The one, the one question that was asked to me, um, they were kind of quizzing me. They said, um, what, what are some of the things that determine uh, whether an organism can, can be selected for something? And mm. off the top of my head, I, I just thought lifespan, like you said, whether, you know, fruit flies can adapt much quicker than Galapagos turtles could to, a, to a drastic event. Yeah. Um, honeybees can can reproduce very rapidly. Like one colony yeah. can turn into four, five, six in one season easily. Right. Um, right. And varroa mites also re reproduce very rapidly, um, yeah. just very rapidly. I, I don't need, I don't really do the testing and the treating or anything, so I don't know all those facts right offhand. But yeah, yeah so they do. And just as you were saying, not only are you knocking down 99% of the mites and men, they're stronger, but the bees totally don't do anything for themselves. So if you, they, if you weren't there for them, they would die. So what I would want to do is kind of flip it around the other way. So, mm -hmm. and it's kind of what I'm doing. I let the bees get knocked down as right. bad as they can, or just, just as bad as it happens, just however it happens, I accept whatever happens. Um, so the bees get knocked down pretty bad, but they always seem to come back each season a little bit better, um, just with mm -hmm. no assistance whatsoever. So that's kind of the rift I was telling you about between uh, 
the two factions of beekeeping. Um, right, right. And I mean, it, it makes some sense, you know, and we see this in other forms of agriculture. Um, and when we're dealing with domesticated animals, that the larger scale the production, typically, the more non-natural like chemical inputs are forced into the system to protect the organisms we're trying to raise and get to market. Um, and, and yeah, and so, you know, smaller, smaller operations tend to be able to, to sustain themselves without the, the really large chemical inputs. But as you, you might be able to speak to that, that's a pretty, you know, work intensive, even though it doesn't require you going out and chemically applying anything, it's a fairly, you know, work intensive, um, sort of way to farm, you know, I have some friends who are, you know, organic farmers, so they just work on really small plots of land without any chemical inputs, obviously. Um, and that, you know, they find it really rewarding, but it's also a ton of work, right? Just a ton of physical labor um, that you, uh, in order to protect their crops, that, that in a larger operation is largely done by automated spray machines, right? That are applying chemicals to remove the aphids, right? As opposed to maybe biological controls like ladybugs or, you know, physical removal by like shaking them, shaking the plants down or something. Um, so I can understand, you know, I, so I understand the, the, the motivation, I think, um, to use chemical inputs to, to try to enhance or promote the survival of your, your crop or your, your, um, your organism. At the same time, like I said, it, the concern is that, you know, the more we are applying chemical inputs, the, the, the more we comp maybe compromising the organism's natural or innate ability to fight anything. Um, and so that I think is, is concerning. Um, also, you know, kind of like you and I were chatting a little bit before the live started, one of the problems that we see with the widespread application of chemical inputs, like, like pesticides, fertilizers, herbicides, I'm thinking more in like agriculture, but certainly it's probably pesticides that are being sprayed on the, um, the applied to bees, right? Cause they're trying to kill the mites. So it's some form of a pesticide probably. Well, I mean, technically it kills a pest. So, right. So it'd be a pesticide, but yeah. they're, they're, they're usually, um, organic acids. So they use, okay. um, formic acid, um, oxalic acid, different kinds of, of acids. There's, um, there's also some really, um, what would you call them? I don't even know. Just, chemically chemicals like really bad that, that and then there's also people using like illegal things or at yeah. doses that are not um that are not accepted by by the laws right. like the epa and that, yeah you actually hit the nail on the head that's kind of where i was like going with that is that what we see in in systems agricultural systems where chemicals are widely used uh whether they're pesticides herbicide or herbicides is that again, we get back to this 99% problem, or I guess it's the 1% problem, right? Where you spray your, your field and you kill 99% of the, you know, the Johnson grass or the invasive weed that's, that's infecting your, your corn or your wheat field. And you kill 99% of that Johnson grass. Great. You get a decent wheat yield from that year, but 1% of that Johnson grass that didn't die is now going to seed in your field. And those seeds are going to sprout into little Johnson grass weeds that you can't kill with the chemicals you've been using because they are resistant. They are born of resistant parents and they inherited their genes for resistance. So now the farmers is stuck because now, like you were saying, they either have to up the doses or they have to go to a, another chemical. And of course, the danger of the second, third, fourth, fifth chemical is that the first chemical is the first for a reason. <laughs> right? The first chemical on the list like to use is always going to be the one that's the most benign, the least harmful to other organisms in the environment, to the groundwater, to humans that consume it. Um, but as you, as, as resistance evolves in your population of pests uh, or weeds, you know, whatever they might be, you have to either increase your, your dosage of that chemical, sometimes pushing up against like the EPA guidelines, or you have to switch to a harsher chemical, one that's not as friendly to the environment or human health or the other organisms in your in your area. So yeah, that's one of the big dangers, right? Is um, is is like once we start that application of chemicals, it's where do you stop? Well, because again, because of selection of the pests, 
for resistance. You know? So, so I have a question. Um, um, there's a couple, there's a couple questions, some good comments coming up, but we'll get to those. Um, sure. When I'm done. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no worries, no worries at yeah. all. This is fun. So I'm one one thing that uh, is commonly said to me. Anybody, any of the beekeepers here that watch this will have heard it, will have read it. Um, beekeepers asserting that this oxalic oxalic acid treatment for varroa mites can cannot be selected for. Like the mites will never become resistant to it. Is what they what is what they say. It's very common to say that. But you probably don't know this. But uh, maybe 12 years ago, 13 years ago, when I started. Um, they were they were using only, I think it was a gram, a gram of oxalic acid like once a year, like that was it. And it, and it was only if you found thirty mites per three hundred on a mite test on, on a right. on a mite count. And then it progressed to where currently they they treat basically no matter what. But um, any even three mites in a mite count is, is the threshold and. They, they've gone to where they're using four grams per, you know, per box. It's kind of like beekeeping jargon here, but, and they do this multiple times, several days apart, and then do that whole system several times during the year. So, so it's kind of a loaded question, but if something goes from using, from being used once a year in a small amount to dozens of times per year in large amounts, um, what are the limits of something you could be selected for? Is it does it ever make sense to say this bug cannot become resistant to this thing? No, it really doesn't. And I don't know enough about the chemistry of oxalic acid and what it does to the physiology of the bees or the the mites to be able to say much about that. And that that might be important information, you know, that would would you know help us answer this question. At the same time, you're absolutely right. Like seeing that kind of increase in the dosage needed in a chemical input typically is like the signature of resistance evolving in your system. And you're only seeing the same results or the desired results by increasing the dose. Right. So I'm not, I don't know that that's what ha what's happening, but you know, that it sure suggests that that's what's happening in these mites. And also, I mean, if this does, does the oxalic acid kill the mites? Well, I'm glad you asked that because yeah. um, what I was going to say is nobody really knows exactly how it kills, how it affects mites. They just huh. know that when it's um, sublimated or commonly they say vaporized, it's heated to a high temperature and then it becomes a cloud of, of pure oxalic acid gas inside the hive. Okay. It, it okay. seems to not harm bees, but, yeah. but after this is done, mites fall, you know, they fall mm -hmm and die on the bottom board you know um, more beekeeping terminology but nobody really can answer how oxalic acid kills mites they'll say that it burns their soft tissues but yeah that has not been proven like that's just some or some people joke and they say it burns their face off or yeah the fact is they do not know how it how it affects them it just does yeah so that's really, really i mean funny. if it's killing them um, and I, I don't want to sound silly, like, you know, anything that kills you, you can evolve resistance to. I mean, I'm not going to evolve a resistance to bullets anytime soon, you know, so, so I'm not like going there that just because something kills you, you can evolve resistance to it. But a chemical that's applied, that, that, you, that is applied to a system and it kills a certain number of animals. I mean, that that's something that's interacting with their physiology. I don't, I don't see any reason. I don't see any way you could say mites could never evolve to this chemical exposure. I mean, it's a chemical, it's interacting with their physiology and it's killing them, um, but not all of them. So, you know, again, I don't, I don't know how you could make the claim like, without doing some pretty darn rigorous studies and they'd have to be longitudinal, right? Like across multiple mite generations to really be able to say with any reassurance that mites either can't, but even that I wouldn't, most most researchers scientists would never say something like this animal simply cannot evolve resistance to this chemical because that just doesn't make a lot of sense it's a chemical interacting with the physiology there are so many ways an animal's physiology can adapt to its environment um that i i i 
I question, I, I strongly question without wanting to throw myself into the center of this debate. Yeah, yeah, I'm trying, yeah. I strongly question any claim that, that, you know, this chemical that's killing all of these animals, um, is, is impossible for the animals to evolve resistance to. It just, that kind of flies in the face of what we understand about the evolution of resistance to chemicals and herbicides, pesticides, what have you. So, yeah, I mean, I think of those, um, somebody said something about, uh, it's so hot or, or it'll burn you. Uh, you can't, you can't adapt or, or coexist with something that burns you. But I was like, we have crustaceans that live in volcanic vents in the ocean that where the water is like several hundred degrees and then they still live. So well, I don't know about that. And are they, does, does the oxalic, you were kind of saying, you know, we are, we, we don't totally know how the oxalic acid kills the mites, but it doesn't kill them because it's hot, right? It's interacting right. somehow, or, or is it some, actually the, is the temperature, does it go in as a, no. as a, as a vapor, like a super heated vapor? It's heated on a really, there, there's several different, um, gadgets now that, that, that vaporize or yeah, vaporize the, the powder and oxalic acid. But mm. once it's inside the hive, it's not hot. It just, okay. It yeah. just flows out of every crevice and crack. So they kind of try to block all the air in there so that nothing can get in or out. You know, it doesn't sure. seem to bother the bees. So yeah, it's not hot, but I think what so they meant by burn, yeah. they meant like an acid burn, but I was just saying yeah. using the heat as an example. Um, yeah. Uh, and maybe if it's just like a caustic, reaction you know that the the ph is at a like the perfect place to burn mites but not burn bees or, or you know um i suppose uh, again i still wouldn't be comfortable saying they couldn't evolve some resistance to it um you know so anyway yeah yeah and also a little more history of of um these treatments for bees is there have been many many treatments that have all been that are all absolutely worthless now um i, I think they kind of re they kind of like reintroduce a couple once in a while, but there's some that are just totally pointless. They, they don't work at all, e even though they did work very, very well when they were first introduced. Yeah, um, interesting. Yeah, and yeah, that's a that's that has happened repeatedly in in agriculture that chemical fertile and uh, not fertilizer so much, but um, herbicides and pesticides that used to work are either don't work at all or are much less effective. Um, now and again that has everything to do with evolution of the pests that we're trying to kill with them all right so so you were talking about studies and that was another quite uh, another question i had well here let's let's look at a couple of these first um yeah uh, muller hellrat says uh, th i think there's more of just a comment um says it also sounds similar to how antibiotics yeah. can compromise the gut microbiome they kill everything rather than targeting a specific microbe so killing all beneficial organisms yeah, that's the, absolutely. There are parallels that run between between that and and what was what is happening in bees. Um, certainly, some of the early applications <clears throat> before the EPA really stepped in and said, "Hang on, we need to we need to evaluate how these chemicals are affecting non-target insect species." But before that, you know, in the early you know early 1900s, all the way up through the 50s, 60s. Um, we would apply just broad scale, um, pretty harsh chemicals to to our uh, a lot of our agricultural um, uh, fields that would kill not only the target pest moth and its larva, but would also kill the monarch butterflies that are feeding on the milkweed next door and the honeybees that are pollinating the the um, the fields all around, or even the crops themselves. Um, and so you have yeah, that's a great analogy using antibiotics the, and get slightly off topic, but the broad, you know, really rampant over prescription of antibiotics that has sort of been traditionally characterized sort of Western medicine, at least in the United States for sure, um, has led to massive problems with people's actual gut biome. Because as kids, um, I'm a product of the eighties, you know, I, uh, I feel like in the eighties growing up, we were just the test subjects for everything. We had the red M&Ms before like red dye number five was banned because it was causing cancer. You know, there was something into Doritos and the Pepsi when I was a kid. You know, it's just like they were just trying everything on us. Um, 
until they, you know, until a, a, a substance would be banned, you know, and then we'd just be yeah. like, okay, the red M&Ms are missing, you know? Yeah, I, um, I don't know how I'm still even alive today. I know, I, to I totally agree. Like, I don't know how I got through it. Um, I'd like to say that I'm stronger for it, but I'm not so sure. I think some of that stuff does damage, but, um, but it's, uh, I also grew up, you know, at a time when it was almost just, it, it seemed like doctors would, would throw antibiotics at just about anything. And that the result of taking those broad spectrum antibiotics, like Moeller Hellrat was, was pointing out, is that you end up killing all of the beneficial bacteria that are such an, an absolutely essential part of our gut microbiome, our ability both to maintain like a balanced physiology as well as, as, well as extract maximum nutrients from what we're eating. All those beneficial bacteria die every time we take a um, broad scale uh, antibiotic for an infection that oft, most of the time had nothing to do with our gut, right? It's just that yeah. that broad scale antibiotic was going to kill any bacteria because it was interacting with their cell walls. So any bacteria in your body that came into contact with that molecule was going to be destroyed. Um, and similarly, that was kind of the approach that we took that kind of shotgun approach. Let's just take something nasty and throw it at the field because it's going to kill those moths and their larvae. Um, that was kind of the initial approach we took um, to agriculture and agricultural pests. And we're still kind of recovering from that in a lot of, a lot of states, honestly, a lot of big ag states. Yeah. So that, that, that made me think of something. Um, a lot of people, beekeeping community, people in the beekeeping community, they, they have this kind of fantasy that someday there will just be no more varroa mites. Somebody is going to figure out the thing that kills every single varroa mite in the United States. And what I would say is, okay, for how long, because they got here on, on some shipping container they'll just be right back you know in a couple yeah. of years um so have do you know offhand if we've ever caused a pest to become extinct in the united states i mean i can't i couldn't think of one um that might but be kind of off subject have we ever no it's not off subject at all have we ever driven the extinction of a pest i want to say that that we have but i but i honestly can't think of a good example um somebody said there was a weevil but then i don't think the weevil was was driven completely off right yeah i don't think so either and then you can talk about you know like the european corn borer that's that little moth and it's larva that that you, like the name implies bores into the stalks of corn causing them to fall down and you lose your, all your corn um i know that we introduced uh that's one of those really neat examples of uh genetically modified organisms where we genetically modified the corn to contain a protein that when consumed by the larva stopped up, literally stopped, caused, caused a blockage in the larva's uh, digestive tract and the larva died and never metamorphosed into a moth. If you never become a moth, you can't reproduce. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that was hyper effective against European corn borers, but, um, but whether they were driven to extinction, I don't know. I kind of doubt because they can switch to other plants. Um, they just preferred the corn for, you know, all sorts of reasons. Monocultures are easier to attack because every single stalk is the same. Every single plant has a really, really super similar physiology. And so they're more susceptible to a single pathogen or pest than like a more diverse field, you know? Um, so I don't know that I don't, the, the short answer is I don't know whether we've actually driven any pests to extinction. Um, I kind of don't think so. Yeah. And what you were saying about killing non-target species, um, I think that, I mean, it's just something that I think, I don't know for sure, but if there was a predator for my, for these tiny um, parasites, like parasites probably also have parasites in some cases, or, or they have predators. So there could be something that could be fighting them if we could just kind of let things alone also, but going in and wiping everything out kind of just keeps restarting everything. Yeah, I mean, and that's a great point. There really are so much more like sort of scientifically creative ways and more natural ways to promote the success and survival of your, you know, your organism of interest. Um, you know, for example, uh, some of the things I was reading in, in just prep for our discussion today, there are some really neat anti-mite behaviors that we see in both honeybees and in their really close relatives. I forget it's a it's another apis species actually found in sort of uh, uh, northeastern Russia. And it's actually where the mite came from. So the mite is native 
to Siberia, parts of Siberia, and there's a particular bee species and another apis uh, bee, same genus as the honeybee, um, that is also native there and has evolved with this mite. And the mite still causes problems. It, it causes some the failure of some colonies, but, but they've evolved to live with the mite. And they have these really cool behaviors um, related to getting rid of mite infection. So what they find is that this other species is really effective at identifying the chemical cues of larvae that are infected with the mite already, that where the mite has already laid uh, eggs in, on the larva. And what this species will do is they are hyper effective at either removing larva or they'll do something called recapping. And they'll, so they'll open, quite literally, they'll open up the cap of the little uh, larval tube. I don't know if I'm using the right terminology, honestly, but a little larva tube, a little, yeah, a little the, like, you know, the little space where the larva hang out. Um, they'll, they'll basically open it up, smell it to confirm, yeah, this is infected, and then they'll recap it. And any mites that emerge from that larva, and the, if there's a female in there still laying or just hanging out with the larva, female mite, she and all of her eggs or the, the larva that have hatched from her eggs will just simply literally be sealed and die in that little chamber. Um, also, these bees practice uh, grooming. Uh, they, they're uh, hyper vigilant about grooming themselves and others. So they do a lot of what's called aloe grooming, which in like you know, primates, it's a really social behavior. You know, you see like little like trains of chimps just kind of sitting on a, a log and they're all, they've all got their backs to each other. And they're just, you know, this one's picking ticks and stuff and fleas off the one in front of it and eating them, right? That's a little protein. And the one behind it mm -hmm. is picking ticks and stuff off of it. And so they're grooming each other to get rid of parasites. Well, these bees are doing the same thing. They're actually grooming each other to help get rid of mites. And these are the kind of behaviors you see in species that have evolved with pests and parasites, right? They obviously they've survived this long, so they must have some ways to keep themselves from going extinct as a result of being exposed to this mite. The problem, of course, when you have an introduced pest like the mite in honeybees, because it was brought from Siberia to Moscow, and then Moscow ended up, like you were saying, uh, in the United States in I think what like the 50s, like not until the 80s, wasn't it? It was yeah, pretty it was late. like the mid to late 80s. Yeah, pretty it's late that it got they say. Right, right. Yeah, who I don't knows? know how you can know exactly yeah. when they got here. But yeah, I think you're talking about yeah. Apis serrani. That's the Japanese honeybee. Yes, thank or you. The that, Asian that's honeybee. the one. That's um, the one. So, but one of the really cool um, studies, there's, there's a whole like series of studies now trying to figure out like how we can promote those kind of behaviors in honeybees. Right. And so researchers are now looking at honeybee behavior really closely and asking questions like, OK, so if we observe a hive, a honeybee colony where we see more of these behaviors like that removal behavior or I think recapping has actually been observed in a few honeybee populations, um, uh, grooming behavior, can we promote those behaviors by promoting that hive, right? Kind of like you were saying, you can, you know, divide a hive, creating multiple colonies, um, you know, and, and if, as long as those behaviors are genetically based and can be passed on to future generations, can we simply create honeybees that have more of these natural defenses, including these behavioral defenses to this introduced pest? So there's some really neat work, I think, being done that doesn't require you know, kind of just falling back on on chemical inputs, but allowing natural defensive behaviors to be promoted by us. Again, this is this is selective breeding. We're the ones yeah. saying these are the traits we want to promote. So these are the colonies we're going to really try to bolster, right? Divide yeah. and and promote. Yeah. So that comes up a lot in conversations, especially for beekeepers who don't treat. Though, well, um, there are breeders who select for that what they call um varroa sensitive hygiene it's yeah, or, um, yeah. so they they do all those behaviors so they really really select for those things very closely but my um my position would be that when you select purposely for one trait mm -hmm. you know kind of arbitrarily you know it may these bees may do that thing really good but are are there other traits that that we don't really notice are actually helping that are so so for me i don't select for any traits at all i've had this question right. like like it was the gotcha question for me a couple of weeks ago 
Um, and I said, I don't select for any traits. The only criteria for my bees is live. Like you need to live right. without my help. So, so maybe it does take a little longer. I mean, it, I noticed a drastic increase in survival after three, three to four seasons. Um, Interesting. And that's what a lot of people find that, that do this, um, depending on what you're starting with. If you're starting with bees that you captured that already lived on their own, or if you're right. starting with some bees that are coming from uh, some bee breeder who pollinates almonds and just yeah, kind of like a, pu a puppy mill for bees, you know, so you right. get these <laughs> barely alive bees. Huh. Um, so here, there's a, you, you'll be interested in this one. There's a, they're testing extended release oxalic dribble on sponges and shop towels, letting it sit there for, 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 there's a long, from what I've heard, it's a long period of time. So to me, I'll see if you agree. Um, extended exposure to a non-lethal, <laughs> non-lethal levels of pesticides for a long time. Maybe it's lethal to a point. But what do you think of this long-term extended exposure of this chemical to try to kill a parasite? Um, that almost, to me, that would seem like that would lead to resistance much fa even faster. Like, well, you know, I don't know. It would be helpful if I could picture like where these towels are, you know. But I'm assuming that the mites are exposed to these towels. You know, the mites are already there in in the colony or in the hive. Um, you, you apply an oxalic acid treatment, you put these towels, you know, maybe outside and perhaps what's happening. I don't think it would to, to, to get to your, your question just real quick though. I don't think it would necessarily affect like the rate of the evolution of resistance. Um, but I could see it potentially being effective again, depending on how the mites are getting to the colony and whether having like a towel soaked in oxalic acid around the colony, around the hive would would repel mites from even trying to enter you know that that seems to me to be a potentially you know if they've got this towel like basically a desert they have to cross and they're they're it's pretty unlikely they're going to survive once they start out on this journey um you know you'll you'll get fewer mites entering the the hive um so i don't think necessarily it would would speed up or slow down the evolution of resistance. Again, it kind of depends on how severe that selective, you know, culling is, you know, again, are you killing 99% of your mites or are you killing most of the mites, but then you're doing a really good job by having these essentially like these oxalic acid moats or deserts around. Well, here, um, you're just I'll not, do, you're not I'll, getting more mites, you know? Yeah. I'll try to make it clear. I, I keep forgetting that, that you didn't, you know, you haven't done beekeeping. So I, yeah, I don't. I can picture a beehive and that's about it. <laughs> so no, the, the way that, that mites do get into your hives, into your, you know, your hives, they're brought in by the bees themselves. Um, they go oh, to other it. infested colonies, they right. attach to their bodies and then they, bees sometimes will go into other colonies. Sometimes they rob each other. Um, so the mites actually don't really survive very long on their own, just kind of walking around. Sometimes they get past, right. they'll, they'll detach on a flower kind of like the way a tick would. And then the next bee that goes there, they'll grab onto them. So I guess that's how they diversify their genetics by kind of going from colony to colony. Um, that's yeah, how they absolutely. In fact, one of the things I did read um, was that bee colonies in panmictic populations. So panmictic simply refers to the ability to mate with pretty much anybody else. Um, and obviously, you know, bees have a very specific uh, mating system with, you know, one or just a couple of, are, are all honeybee hives single queen? Is it a single queen all species? Um, the majority of the time there is, there's one yeah. queen, but it's very common to have um, two, maybe two queens. Okay. Not often much more than that, but okay. there, there are several reasons why that can happen. Sometimes they're yeah. just there might be like a daughter queen that didn't take off and they kind of still get along sometimes there's very weird reasons why that can happen right. but it does happen yeah um, but but it's a yeah so that's good it's good to know um but yeah basically what what i found in in some of my my reading was that uh the more freely bees honeybees can mate with individuals from other colonies um the better they are at at surviving mite infestation and again, that probably has something to do with outbreeding, you know, genetic diversity. 
by having a more diverse set of, of genes. Um, yes, some individuals in a colony might be susceptible, but you know all of these others aren't. Um, and uh, and so it's interesting when we then bring in sort of the the idea of like breeding systems and how are we allow are we allowing you know our bees um, to to move among hives and mate with sort of who they want who they choose um, to promote that sort of panmictic um, you know more robust uh, response to to then like subsequent mite infection. Um, it seems like the more inbred, and that's not surprising to any of us, right? The more inbred uh, a colony or a population, if you just have colonies, you know, around a, a small number of colonies around your field, or if you're forcing a single queen to produce most of the offspring for multiple hives, um, you may run into an inbreeding sort of problem or just simply a problem where if all of your hives have the same genetics, more or less, because they're coming from the same queen, um, they are all going to be more or less equally susceptible to that next strain of bacteria or that next mite infection. Um, the more diverse uh, your colonies or the more diverse the organisms in your population, the more it's a moving target for pests and pathogens. Yeah, yeah you get that, that shuffling of the, of yeah. the gen genetics. Exactly. Um, but I mean, to make it even more <laughs> crazy is, you know, a queen goes out and mates with any for, with a large number of drones who could be from right. anywhere. They could be from colonies miles away. So that, I've often, you know, wondered how how an inbreeding could happen. I guess it could happen. But I think, yeah, there's just so much genetic information out there with all the different colonies, even if you have one queen and you and you make. 20 daughters of her um by the time they get mated um out in the wild you know because they fly out and, and meet with maybe right. with the feral pollination population right. um you know they're your neighbors bees so it just gets shuffled constantly um but i guess it could happen yeah um, i just from yeah from the studies i read just that um having allowing for this and it sounds like that's the natural condition this panmixia you know where individual queens are, are free and drones are free to sort of visit colonies and mate with who they who they will so um let me see was there any uh uh daisy says hi chuck thanks hey, for having us daisy <laughs> i think i think daisy's thanks been following me, over, following me over on tiktok since about day one which is i, I just deeply appreciate daisy <laughs> yeah so i didn't even tell everybody so i, I even met um I wanted. I keep wanting to say Chuck. <laughs> I met, yeah, it's okay. Met, yeah, um, it's on TikTok. I mean, I, I never even thought I would be on TikTok, and then one day I just started making little goofy videos. Same. And then I I came across your your um some of your content, and I was like, oh, cool. This is science people. I love science people. Science and when I people. Saw, yeah, they're my I saw, people. <laughs> uh, when I saw you, you know, specialize in evolutionary biology, I was like, oh, I gotta ask if you can come on. Yeah, um, too cool. So I have a question about about research. Okay, so there's a lot of bee research that's, that gets done a lot yeah. um, by a lot of researchers, I guess. But um, a lot of them are, let's see. So my question is going to be about bias in research. Hmm. So, so I, I recently uh, kind of gave my feelings about a, a research project that, that happened a few years ago. Um, it went over a few years and then I think it just ended, but um, how hard is it to to remove bias from? So here's an example. Here's an example. I thought of this uh, at work today. Say uh, I want to do. I want to find out if grass-fed beef is healthier than corn-fed beef. It seems yeah. like a pretty straightforward, um, pretty straightforward test. You, know, you get a bunch of cows, you feed them grass. You get a bunch, you feed them corn. Right. But the problem is I'm a cattle farmer and I feed my cows grass and that's what right. I've been doing for my whole career. Can I can I effectively direct people to to go through this, you know, all, whatever all the processes of are of of gathering data and present them without bias? Is it possible? Yes. I could be yes. wrong. <laughs> no, no, you're not wrong. It it is a challenge. Um, it is it is a challenge. Uh, now the the great thing, one of the things I love about the scientific process, 
um, is the way that and and let me first just say that we have to we have to distinguish between like individual observations that you and I may make in our backyard or even of our you know our cattle and they could be really sound observations. Um, big differences between those kind of observations and us drawing infer inferences from the results and us actually prepare couple of things, us having gone through the rigorous process of designing an experiment and a well-designed experiment will always have sort of first and foremost at its core, um, a drive to eliminate bias, just simply through the design of the experiment. So that what your feelings about grass-fed beef versus grain-fed beef don't matter. Um, even if you have really strong opinions, right? That's kind of the beauty of the scientific process is that um, we go through a number of steps long before we ever put the experiment in place or collect a single data point. We've gone through steps to try to assure that bias doesn't enter into our analysis or certainly into our experimental design. Then after that, even after we have collected the data, and there are a number of ways, even when you're collecting data to try to eliminate bias, you know, you can have people collecting the data for you who have no interest or even information about the specific study. Um, there are all sorts of ways, like that's just one of literally thousands of ways we can work on eliminating bias at the data collection stage, maybe not thousands, but <laughs> lots of ways to eliminate bias at the data collection stage. And then at the results, at the analysis results stage, again, we're using mathematical and usually statistical tests that quite literally are designed to address potential bias and either identify it or eliminate it in the analysis. And then finally, and you know, if we're really talking about the way science gets done and disseminated, the information disseminated to people, we're talking about peer reviewed papers, you know, we're talking about papers that have gone through that whole process that I just talked about, you know, and then before they ever see the light of day, they get absolutely skewered by three or four reviewers and it's always reviewer two that's the real stick in the mud in my experience reviewer two man um but yeah, there's always a set of reviewers that are experts in that field who are tearing your study apart looking for things like bias or air in your in your interpretation again maybe because of your bias it's a challenge for to do backyard science because, well, backyard science is awesome and we should all be doing backyard science, um, but we don't necessarily, we're not really trying to publish our backyard science. Um, so it's important to recognize that while backyard science is, is vital, it can be beautiful, it gets people interested in not only their backyards, but in, the, in science and nature. Um, it is not the scientific process that we use to be able to say something definitively. The only way we can say something definitively, yes, this is true, my hypothesis is true, my hypothesis is false, is really if we've gone through this process that at every step is really designed to eliminate bias so that we can be as sure as possible that when we say this is true, this is actually happening, that it's true, right? It's not just our interpretation of what's happening, it's our rigorous analysis from start to finish um, to say, yes, this is happening or no, this isn't happening. So yeah, well, it's, it's baked been... into, so, so eliminating bias is baked into science, um, but not everything we do scientifically goes through that same rigorous process. Yeah. I think that, um, like I was telling you before we went live, that the, the, the rift between beekeepers who do the the agri you know the bee farming standard things that you do the same thing that the commercial beekeepers do that group and people like me is like so divided so so That's some wild. of these research some of the research that is done is um it'll often be treating bees versus not treating your bees what will happen and and i can tell you what will happen before any, anything is done um when and i've said all my people who view me uh know that i say this often but it's kind of like saying I got two people, one I'm going to give a bunch of steroids, one I'm not, and they're going to work out which one's going to get the most muscles. It's very, very obvious what's going to happen. But for me, I don't really, they're trying to determine best practices for agricultural honey farming and pollination, which means keep those bees alive, which I, I can understand that, that treating may help you keep more bees alive. 
So for for over here, my my main concern is um, selecting for survival. I just want to have I want to enjoy the natural bugs the way they do what they do. Yeah. Um, I don't want to become a chemist in my in my backyard and and just really that's it just doesn't seem fun to me. But that's kind of what this is about. I don't know where the heck I was going with that. But well, yeah, so, I mean, so, it's too it's too bad. There's such a rift. You know, it's too bad. It's like you either use chemical inputs or you don't. And if you're on one side, you know, the other side, you kind of vilify the other side. It's, it's kind of like, you know, look, we're all trying to like promote bee survival. You know, we're all mm -hmm. trying to sell a product and like, let's just recognize that we're all sort of in this together. You, you do what you want to do, even if I disagree with the methods and I'll do what I'm going to do. And, you know, if we keep working on it, some, hopefully sooner or later, somebody will stumble on like that, that really dynamite combination of of like that, that really enhances hive survivorship um mm -hmm. in the face of a really nasty pest um, yeah. i mean i used to be much much that worse. it has to be so contentious like that's crazy yeah. i'm getting better i've i've come <laughs> to i've so, matured so, it's you. so you're driving it <laughs> it, it might be me but um but it's me <laughs> it's that taylor show song um yeah, yeah but yeah, yeah. I've kind of matured a little bit to the point where I can say, Hey, you guys do what you want to do. Yeah. I'll do what I want to do. We could work together if you wanted to, you know, you could keep them alive and then just have genetics like from people like me. It doesn't have to be me, but I feel like they would, they could benefit from having bees that get their butt kicked yeah. and, you know, keep going and just use them commercially. But um, I think it just would, it would, it would really mess up the whole system if, if bees, didn't die um pretty you know they have to die in pretty high numbers because from the stories that i hear of the golden years of beekeeping like no bees died like everybody just lived every year and it doesn't make sense to me wow. because we would be sky high in bees if nothing ever died they have to die so um so i really don't even believe that yeah no that that's really interesting yeah really interesting uh, we'll see if there's any more questions here um I'll let the sign. It does. Yeah, Dr. Time Wasters. Awesome. Um, yeah, and it really does. It's And it's not perfect. Scientific method isn't perfect, but it really is designed, among other things, but to eliminate bias or at least help us identify bias when it creeps in. Um, and yes, that's one of the things I love about it, too. I really do. And it's one of the things that I think a lot of people don't recognize about science and the scientific method. Um, you know, where we live in a really... A crazy time, um, and uh, and science information gets, you know, scatter scatter shot all over the place, um, and people are kind of left to to pick and choose, and um, and that's that's problematic. But one thing that that I hope does sort of get better communicated is that good science is is bias free, and it doesn't mean the the human who's doing it is bias free. Um, because we're all human, we're, we, we can have opinions, we can have biases, um, but the scientific method, especially when you go through the peer review process, so you're publishing your, your work, the scientific method is designed to eliminate, at least identify bias and eliminate it where possible. But when you're writing your paper or after the reviewers have looked at it and identified ways that you need to address potential bias, those are things you can literally address in your, in your manuscript as you're trying to publish it. Um, so yeah, science tries, tries as as much as possible to eliminate the, the the bias that is inherent in all human beings. What's funny is I read some kind of studies that were specifically about bias. Like how do you do a study about bias yeah. and not be biased while you're doing it? Like it, it gets it gets really, really deep sometimes um, mm -hmm. trying to remove bias. Sometimes it's just uh, someone might not even really realize that they're biased in, in certain exactly. ways. Um, so you can do like double blind studies, uh, but I don't know if, if that always works. I'll take a couple more questions and then we're right at an hour. So I think I, yeah. I think I got every question that I had out of the way and I just had a great time talking. I'm yeah, sure there'll be a lot of follow-ups. We could do, I know you're, you're growing your YouTube channel over there a little bit and maybe you'll eventually. Try it. Yeah. So try anybody it. watching. Uh, go check out uh, Chuck. I should not forget your name. Uh, <laughs> Chuck Darwin. God damn. I mean, 
Charles Darwin, Chuck Darwin. Um, Chuck, old, old Chuck Darwin. <laughs> um, it's hard to blindly test things out on bees. You want them to survive, but that but that affects the results and taints the test. I would say, yeah, you want your bees to survive and trying things out um, keeps them alive. But as, as Seth was saying, some organisms otherwise would not be alive if you didn't keep them alive. So it's kind of just... In my opinion, you know, I might make some people mad, but uh, it's just setting you up for failure down the road. Um, great to see you, uh, Dr. Timewaster. Loves your microscope, microscope TikTok. Yeah. Thank you so cool. much. That means a lot to me. Your support is much appreciated. All right, so I think we, uh, I think we went over everything I wanted to. Um, I just want to thank you again for coming on. Um, it was My a lot pleasure. of fun. And yeah, let me know if you ever want to come back on again. We'll after you learn a little, you'll, you'll probably want to learn a little bit about bees now. I mean, I'm uh, I'm on my way to go learn more about bees and beekeeping. And yes, let's do this again for sure. Cool. All right. Thank you. Uh, yeah, to thank everyone you. who's watching, uh, thanks everybody. Have a good night, and we'll see you guys on the next one. Good night.